and welcome to the Caring Congregation podcast, where we seek to educate and equip pastors, congregational care ministers, or CCMs, and church laity to create a culture of care in the church and community. I'm Reverend Joy Dister Dominguez, your host and producer of this podcast. I'm excited to continue in season five, which is all about the intersection of care and social justice. If you missed any of the first four seasons or perhaps any of this uh, new season, season five, I invite you to go back and listen. Today, we have a very special episode. I'm excited to talk with Reverend Dr. Steve Harper, who is a retired elder in the Florida Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. And he's also a retired professor of spiritual formation and Wesley studies, having taught since 1980 in many schools and colleges, universities, theological schools, both in the United States and and elsewhere. He received his PhD in 1981 from Duke University and is a scholar on Wesley studies and the life of John Wesley. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Harper. Wherever you find yourself, whether you're still questioning or wrestling with deep theological questions, especially around human sexuality, I hope that this conversation opens your eyes, your ears, your heart to a deeper understanding of how God is at work in this world and how God is at work in each one of us, helping us, guiding us, um, inviting us into the mystery of God. This is such a rich conversation, one that I will always treasure. I'm grateful for Dr. Harper's insight, and I hope that you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed having this conversation. Take a listen. Well, Dr. Harper, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure, Joy. I look forward to visiting with you. Absolutely. Well, we would love for you to first tell us about yourself and your journey of theological interpretation. Okay, well, my journey is uh, born, raised, graduated from high school in West Texas in a town called Haskell, went to McMurray College. It's now McMurray University in Abilene. So uh, Texas roots, I uh, haven't lived there in a long, long time, but uh, that's, that's sort of where it all began. But I'll focus in on the question about your theological interpretation rather than just go into details. Jeannie and I have been married 52 years and we've got, we've got two children and grandchildren and there's all kinds of stories about that. But your question about theological interpretation is um, really summed up in the word conservative. And I want to distinguish that between fundamentalists because those two overlap, but they're not identical. I don't think I've ever been a fundamentalist in the way that it comes across today in a very kind of mean-spirited, narrow-minded theology, but but I did uh, grow up and embrace a conservative theology in general, Um, and that also was was part of, uh, you know, the sexuality journey was conservative too, essentially welcoming but not affirming. I, I trusted my teachers, Joy, and I'm not blaming them. I'm simply saying that I was getting good education um, in seminary at Asbury back in the early 70s. And so when we, when we studied human sexuality, I, I didn't say, well, it's been good up to now. 
uh, you know, you trust your teachers and you figure that if what they're telling you is, is, is positive and helpful, that when we got around to human sexuality, uh, that was also. So in other words, I take responsibility. I, you know, I didn't do my homework for a long time. I just trusted my teachers and the tradition and didn't really explore it. But when I did explore it, and we can talk more about how that happened, uh, but when I did explore it, I discovered that there was an equally credible progressive theology of human sexuality. Uh, it wasn't that people have been hiding it from me. It's just that, you know, it, it, it wasn't in my field of vision. And through my investigation uh, eight years ago and still, you know, continuing, um, I, I have found, I believe, uh, a biblical way uh, to interpret all of this. So uh, conservative in the beginning and more progressive now. Mm -hmm. In your book, Holy Love, you mentioned your years at Duke University. And um, you say here that you, you were never told what to believe by your professors at Duke. Yeah. So that in contrast to your, your work at Asbury, how did that feel um, did you feel like you were almost floundering in a little bit of like, wait a minute, you're not telling me, yeah. <laughs> you're not telling me what it is to believe. And how was that? How did that open your eyes to a new study? Okay. Yeah, that's a fair question because McMurray was a more progressive liberal um, form of education in those days. And I did major in sociology and also in religion. So I came out of there with a double major. Asbury's in between and then, then on to Duke later. That, that didn't happen uh, for another, what, four years, I guess, between. Here's the thing. Even Asbury didn't really force feed us. Asbury didn't tell us what to believe. Um, they just sort of limited the field of vision so that we, we knew that there were other ways to look at it, but you've been through seminary. You don't have all the time in the world to explore you've got tests to take papers to write and books to read and so you just tend to stay pretty much on the track mm -hmm. i think the difference though um particularly at duke was it was my first time to literally have my feet on a university campus of some size and significance and just that environment was was a was a was a breath of fresh air. There there was a, a ton of diversity at Duke. Not only not not only in the PhD program in religion, but but just the university as a whole. So as I look back on it now, that's part of the journey. It's that journey of knowing when you're in an environment that is uh, healthy and is formative. And, uh, and, and, and how freeing that is. So that Duke sort of fits into that, that phase of my spirituality. Sure. You were surrounded by such diversity that was, that was able to open your eyes to, to new yeah. ways of thinking. I think you probably experienced that at SMU and at Perkins. Sure. I mean, it's just, it's just where you are every day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And so in the last, you say about eight, uh, about eight years, your yeah. theology has, has shifted, has grown, mm -hmm. has evolved, has changed. Um, and John Wesley talks of this concept of, of emerging theology and living faith yeah. um, that is autobiographical. Can you help us understand what he meant by this and, and how that has played into your own journey? 
Well, Wesley understood, as I think Luther did, as I think Francis of Assisi and Claire did, as the Desert Mothers and Fathers, that faith grows, faith develops. And um, I tend to be kind of a simple theologian to try to communicate. But I mean, we take this for granted in every area of life. I can remember growing up, there was a time when I get ready to go to school and the shirt that I was wanting to wear didn't fit anymore. So we had to go out and buy a new shirt. Mm-hmm. We didn't think anything about that. That's, that's just the way it was. You were supposed to outgrow some things. You were supposed to uh, get some new clothes. I mean, you just, you, you didn't question that. You didn't think anything was wrong. And I've come to look at spiritual life, spiritual formation and theology in much the same way. The, the, the soul grows. Um, now, some people want to kind of put constrictions on how that growth can occur. And, and I guess to a certain extent, we even do that in a progressive theology because, you know, we want to move sort of that direction. But my point is, what Wesley was talking about when he talked about living faith was, was uh, in opposition to dead orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. For example, the church used to think that the earth was the center of the universe. And when Galileo Copernicus came along and said, no, the sun's the center of the universe, some of they, them were martyred. They were tossed mm-hmm. out of the church and some of them were killed. Mm-hmm. So even when we change, even when we make legitimate growth, not everybody's going to celebrate it. Not everybody's going to like it. But it's the difference between incorporating newness into our faith or keeping it out. And I think one of the things that's unfortunate about conservative theology is it is not bringing the sciences, the behavioral and physical sciences into the mix it's, it's, it's dealing with, frankly, outdated understandings of human development. Um, and then that, again, up against a certain way of interpreting the passages, almost leads to foregone conclusions. I think living faith, whatever it is, means that we are constantly gathering. We are bringing into our point of view things that were not previously there. And that, that will automatically affect the way we look at life. Uh, it, it's just bound to. Absolutely. And that is John Wesley's gro- going on to perfection, how we are yeah, uh, so. growing in that sanctifying grace. And, and thanks be to God for, uh, for God's forgiveness and mercy that we're able Absolutely. to have new eyes to see and, um, Well, it doesn't even mean that it doesn't mean that when we change, we always get it right. Sometimes we go, whoops, that didn't work. Uh, But there's a there's a flexibility. I think Jesus talked about it in terms of new wineskins. The wineskins are fresh. They're supple. They're not brittle. They're not cracked. They're not leaking. Um, Sure, you're going to spill some wine every now and then. and You may have Mm -hmm. to go up. And and, uh, I've always told people for years in my teaching, if you're on the highway of holiness, you can always make a U-turn if you (laughs) really in the wrong direction just get off at the next exit and turn around <laughs> that, that, that. That, that, that keeps it natural it's not forced it's, it's just uh, sure. you know you're getting it right hopefully most of the time but not always you don't mm-hmm. pretend to be 100 correct you're just you're just trying trying to stay alive in your faith sure when i hear that 
it encourages me to continue to go back to those stories that we quote unquote, know Mm -hmm. (laughs) to read them with fresh eyes, because we are different people. Every time we read the the stories. um, And when we dive deeper into scripture, the text can come alive in ways that we, that may be unexpected. And so that's why I think uh, especially as congregations, we need to be intentional in our Bible studies. We need to be intentional in our faith formation, discipleship, spiritual practices, so that we can continue to grow, that we can continue to, um, to expand our understanding of God and one another. Joy, that is, that is so, let me take a simple illustration and uh, use it if for any clergy who might be listening, but I think this would apply to laity who may do Bible studies or teach Sunday school classes. You go back to some of your notes or to that sermon you preached in the lectionary three years ago, and you say, no, <laughs> that, that won't work this time. Because in, in that intermediate time, that three years between, you know, like year B and year B, <laughs> things have changed. You're in a different place. You're in, in very rarely will you go back and re-preach or reteach something. Sure. Sure. That, that's, that's part of what Wesley meant by living faith. Mm-hmm. Well, and especially now on the other side, or, or I should say emerging out of a pandemic, we're different people than even two yes. years ago, um, yes. pre-COVID. So we have different perspective. Um, so let's go back to Lent of 2014. Yep. And in this season that you talk about in Holy Love, you share about your examination and this time of prayer where your position began to change from mm-hmm. being quote, welcoming, but not affirming yeah. to being a visible ally and advocate for LGBTQ persons. Yes. So yes. could you expound upon that? And how did that happen? How did that feel? Each Lent, I try to do something different. That's been my custom for a long, long time. I've done a few things over. And one of them is to use the Book of Common Prayer. Um, And so I decided in 2014 that I would let the Book of Common Prayer readings and and all of the prayers for Lent be be the root, the the center of my Lenten pilgrimage. Um, That, for the most part, went the way I expected it. But what I didn't expect was to encounter some of the prayers that I was praying in that journey. Let me give you just a couple of examples. With respect to the human family, the Book of Common Prayer says, take away the arrogance and hatred which infects our hearts and break down walls that separate us. Wow. Then more to the church, there's a prayer that says we're supposed to be concerned about, quote, the great dangers we're in by our unhappy divisions, Mm. the great dangers we're in because of our unhappy divisions. Well, if you recall, March and April of 2014 was the time when uh, we began to enter a new phase of conflict. Um, Rob Renfro at Good News was calling it a cage match. They were going after Bishop Roy Sano and Adam Hamilton and the Holy Spirit through those prayers in the Book of Common Prayer said, Steve, you got to either follow what these prayers are saying or stop praying them. Hmm. If you don't really think you're in great danger because of unhappy divisions, then don't pray that prayer anymore because 
you're told you're in great danger. If you don't think so, then don't pray this again. And so March and April of 2014 looked pretty dangerous to me. And I'll make it very simple. I, I think people change when they have what they call turn, uh, uh, turning points, tipping points. Uh, I just had enough is enough. And it wasn't because I thought I was so righteous. It's because I just had never been mean-spirited like that. And I'm thinking, if this is where the evangelical tradition is going, I don't want to go there. Now that left me. You said, how'd that make you feel? Well, it made me feel like a man without a country mm. <laughs> because I didn't really know where to go. Uh, I was well-versed in one side and, and underversed in the other side. And I want to say very quickly, it was the LGBTQ community that gave me a place to land with welcome and acceptance and, and, uh, what have you. I felt like the labor in the vineyard in Matthew chapter 20, where I'd worked for one hour, you know, and yet you get the same way at the end. Mm -hmm. And I realized that even though I was 66 years old when I made this change and had, and many people had worked decades longer than I had, that it's not how long you work, it's that you work at all. And so that's been my journey. It's never been a journey to try to equal what so many others have done. I'm, I'm way behind and still playing catch up. But once I said enough is enough, and that mean spiritedness just doesn't represent the two great commandments, it doesn't mm -hmm. represent the spirit, um, I had to, I had to uh, pray those prayers and say, Lord, we're in great danger because of our unhappy divisions. Mm -hmm. enjoying the conversation. There are many more resources on our website, thecaringcongregation.com. I hope that you'll check them out. Also, we have two exciting webinars coming up. The first, July 15th and 16th, 2022, for certified lay ministers to receive specialization in congregational care. This is in collaboration with the Lay Servant Ministry of the United Methodist Church. And October 15th and 16th, 2022, we'll host our fall webinar to train and equip your pastors and laity to coordinate and begin a care ministry. This is also a great training for new congregational care ministers or pastors who are looking to take their care ministry to a whole new level. All are welcome to join us. It doesn't matter what denomination you're in or even if you're just curious. You can register on our website, and please reach out if you have any questions. And now, back to our episode. And I can imagine as you're having this revelation, you had perhaps some fear or trepidation in how you were going to explain this to your colleagues your more conservative colleagues. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that anticipating um, conversation as you were anticipating this conversation or sure. well, conversations? It may surprise you um, because what I did to start processing, uh, I'm, I'm uh, like an Episcopalian uh, rector named Alan Jones, Madeline Lingle's son-in-law, actually. I, I think he may be dead now. But in one of his books, he said, I write in order to know what I think. So I began to write what became the book For the Sake of the Bride. 
And that's how I was processing. I was trying to figure out where in the world, where in the theological world am I? And that was two years before uh, General Conference. And I was hoping that, that that book might generate some discussions that would, that would keep us from becoming so contentious with each other. Maybe in a few places it did, but in the long run it hasn't, I don't think. But as, as I was writing that, the surprising thing, people said, well, what did you think people were going to do when they read? I, I never, I never thought about it. I, I either wrote naively or innocently or <laughs> with so much passion that it just didn't cross my mind. But what happened was within one week after For the Sake of the Bride came out, um, as they say, it hit the fan. Mm -hmm. the details because I don't want to act like I'm casting stones at uh, at the past but uh, no it was pretty severe the pushback was swift and the pushback was severe I don't think even the people who pushed back would you know deny that but uh, at the time of actually changing at the time of actually writing the first book no I, I actually wasn't thinking about what the repercussions might be I just was had my eyes so focused on where I was going I didn't think about what might become of it Wow. That's so courageous. Um, truly. How did you process that blowback that you received? I'm assuming you probably lost friends or. Oh, yes. Yeah. Quite a few. There are some people eight years later that we've yet to hear from. Wow. Uh, we have heard from some you know, pretty vigorously. Uh, we've watched friends disappear on Facebook and all that, that kind of stuff. Um, I think the way of processing it is the way that somebody in the conservative camp interpreted it for me. And I'll just share what I was told. And that is, Steve, you're getting so much pushback because you spent so much time in the conservative world that you're now a threat because if you can change, maybe anybody could, see? So, it's, it's like, you know, you can't let the camel's nose get in the tent because you might get the whole camel in there. And here I was having taught at Asbury for 30 years. I was the distinguished alumnus of 2012. Two years later, I'm almost the extinguished alumnus. And wondering about that, wondering why so many went silent or disappeared or whatever but then one of the people said well I let me tell you why I think it is and that is that your change is 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 a threat to those who don't want to change and I, I I've not followed that up I haven't tested that but uh, you said how, how would you I think if I had not changed if somebody else had say besides me I think I would have probably uh, would have probably felt the same, you know, would have felt a little bit you know, betrayed, maybe. Um, how could somebody so entrenched in one point of view uh, leave that point of view behind? That's a pretty upsetting uh, mm -hmm. kind of thing. I, and, and I understand that. I really do. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so you write in Holy Love, uh, in regard to our theology of sexuality, you say, quote, we have too often made anthropology of who we are, a starting point more than theology, who God is. Uh, 
Can you expound upon your hermeneutic of love and why that's important? Sure. I, I actually deal with that in chapter two of Holy Love, where I look at five words that begin with C. <laughs> but I start with creator before creation. Mm-hmm. And that's really, if you look at Genesis 1, that's you know, in the beginning God. That's you got those words before you get created the heavens and earth. So even though it happens fast, creator is there before creation. So in that section of the book, as you know, because you've read it, I discovered several things about God that ripple out into creation, or at least I think they're supposed to. One is that God's non-binary. God is Trinity. Now, when that really dawned on me, I thought, why did it take us so long to figure that out? Our doctrine of the Holy Trinity, this divine dance, this perichoresis between the three members of the Holy Trinity is one way of saying God is is not binary. God is Mm -hmm. not it is uh, genderless, if you will, or this is a big one. God is with a capital T transgender. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you get those kind of thoughts going. And then when you start reading the rest of the creation story, it looks different. The other thing is that God is loving. God enters into a loving relationship with all that God makes. And you think to yourself, okay. That must mean that whatever happens between two human beings, it it's, must be loving. See? So love, a theology of love, which is right down the alley in our Wesleyan tradition, you just say, okay, this is going to be one of the words that's going to help me interpret what happens after, after this. The other is that seven times in the first creation story, you have the word good. Mm-hmm. There's the morality, see? Mm-hmm. So if God is non-binary, loving and good, then the creation is non-binary, loving and good. Whoa. <laughs> so Absolutely. all the pairings, and it was night and day, and then it, there, were, there was sun and moon, those are spectrum words. Night and day are not the only two times. There's mm-hmm. midday, there's mid-morning, mid-afternoon, evening, early morning. You know, you can just, night and day are not the only ways we talk about time. Sun and moon are not the only ways we talk about the universe. So why, when you get to male and female, do we suddenly throw out the exegesis of spectrum and say, oh, no, 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 that's just two. That's, that's mm-hmm. two. There's, there's all kinds of spectrum up before that. But when you get to male and female, that's just two. No, the, the writer of Genesis is talking about spectrum all the way through. And another way that you see it in the first creation story is the word kind. All the kinds, kind, each according to its kind. We don't even know how many species there are. So my, my point, Joy, is that once started with the creator, then the creation God's not going to make a world different from who God is. God's not going to make a world in opposition to who God is. See, this is one of the things that conservatives said, well, this LGBTQ sexuality is is a consequence of the fall. 
Genesis 3. And you say, mm-hmm. well, why does it say that? See, I mean, if you want to be biblical, then let's be biblical. Where mm-hmm. does it that human sexuality fell from a non-binary into a binary and from a, from a, a, um, a um, homogeneity to a heteronormativity? You know, the scripture, you have to read that into the text. And I'm not saying that people are irresponsible when they do that. They really believe it. All I'm saying in response to your question is when I started with God, then human beings look different because imago dei, see, and likeness. See, if God is non-binary, loving, and moral, then if I'm going to be like God, then non-binary, loving, and moral is part of my story too, see. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. that's the end. That's awesome. <laughs> thank you for, thank you for spending that time to really help us digest that. I think that is so important. We need to start, if we're going to start, it's got to be Genesis one. We can't start with the fall. It's not total depravity. We've got to start at the beginning. Well, in our Wesleyan tradition, it's original righteousness. It's original mm-hmm. goodness. Yes. Yeah. Something happened to human sexuality in the fall, but it happened to heterosexuals too. So it's sure. Not sure. just that all of a sudden you've got LGBTQ people when you didn't have them before. Mm-hmm. The Bible doesn't teach that. Mm-hmm. It does teach that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's been one of my problems with the conservative sexuality. It spends all its time judging LGBTQ people. I served on the ministry for eight years. And all of during that time, all of our cases of clergy sexual misconduct were with heterosexual clergy, not LGBTQ clergy. Sure. We still don't ever seem to get around to that conversation. Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Be sure to join us next week for part two. This was such a long conversation. I, I broke it up into two sections. So this was part one. Next week, part two will drop and you're not going to want to miss it such rich conversation. I'm so grateful for Dr. Harper and his time to share with us. If this is helpful, I hope that you will also consider sharing with your pastor or laity. Pastor, share with your congregation. Be sure to also check the show notes. Dr. Harper's books and his website will be listed. I hope that you'll follow up with him and be sure to read more information about all the resources that he provides. They're excellent. So hopefully you check that out as well. Be sure to uh, rate this, give us a, a star review, be sure to comment. It helps with the algorithms so that more people can find us. And as always, we'll see you here next week. May God bless you and keep you.